0: This is Drummers Resource Podcast, session 452. And the quote of the day is try not to become a man of success, rather, become a man of value. You're listening to the Drummers Resource Podcast, home of in depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond and beyond and beyond. What's up, everybody? Nick Ruffini here. Episode 452 coming at you. And this is a little bit of a different episode. So about a year and a half ago, I had the great pleasure of interviewing Roy Burns from Aquarian Drumheads. And he has since passed. And this past Friday would would have been his 83rd birthday. And on Wednesday, we all got together at Aquarian Drumheads and had sort of a celebration of life for Roy. It was also the Aquarian Artist Day. So there was a bunch of artists there and everyone was sort of mingling and talking about Roy and and the amazing impact that he's had on the drumming community. And I wanted to re-release this interview and also give a little bit more context about Roy, because I think a lot of times... We see Roy as just the owner of Aquarian Drumheads and a man who was a great entrepreneur. And he was. He was an amazing entrepreneur. And he and his partner, Ron, took Aquarian Drumheads. They started it in 1980 and grew it into the amazing company that it is today. But also, Roy, before and during this time, was a very, very accomplished drummer. He was born in Kansas, and at the age of 20— took 300 bucks and a drum set and moved to New York City. Within a year, he was Woody Herman's drummer. He then left there, became Benny Goodman's drummer, and was touring all around the world with him. And while based in New York, was doing work for the NBC Orchestra, the Merv Griffith Show, The Tonight Show. And then in 1968, he became the staff artist at Rogers Drums. And what that meant was he would travel around the world doing clinics, And now in 2018, that doesn't seem odd or out of ordinary for a guy to be traveling around doing drum clinics for a brand, but this had never been done before. So Roy Burns invented the drum clinic. He's also revered for his live work, his studio work, teaching, his method books. And then he also wrote these articles. These are my favorites. In Modern Drummer Magazine, he started writing them in 1980, and they were called Concepts. And he would write about all sorts of topics. He would talk about life and psychology and philosophy and drumming. And that column ran until 1992. And these are just a few of the things that Roy Burns has accomplished in his amazing career. So he's not just the guy behind Aquarian. He is that, but he's also so many other things. And he meant a lot to a lot of other people. He was a father. He was a mentor. He was a drumming ambassador. As Chris Brady said from Aquarian, he said he was he was a champion. And there are some artists who I have on here that are gonna tell you what impact Roy had on their lives and what Roy Burns meant to them. So before we get into this interview, you're going to hear from Daniel Glass. You're going to hear from Mike Johnston. You're going to hear from Eric Moore. You're going to hear from Chris Brady explaining exactly how important Roy Burns was to them and their careers. So let's get into it with these guys.
1: Hey, it's Daniel Glass here. What does Roy Burns mean to me? Well, growing up as a child in the far-flung outpost of Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, Roy Burns was an omnipresent force. Uh, He, along with Buddy Rich, Louis Belson, Ed Shaughnessy, uh, names like that, Les DeMerle, you'd see him on the posters and all the music store walls, the the few drum shops we had on the walls there. So he was a name I became familiar with very early on. Uh, When I started looking at modern drummers, he had a regular article for many, many years in Modern Drummer Magazine, um, and his books, his educational books, were everywhere. He was a real pioneer of education. Uh, when I got to high school, jazz band, we played uh, many of the charts from the Big Bad and Beautiful album, which was an album from arranger Dick Grove and uh they had made an actual album. Roy Burns was the drummer on that album. So there was Roy again in my high school years, me trying desperately to come up with something resembling what he had played on that uh, Big Bad and Beautiful album. Um, interestingly, when I became or, you know, was on the road to becoming a professional musician, I went to the Dick Grove School of Music. So, of course, that album was there. And um, being in L.A., that was finally when I had the opportunity to meet Roy. And, of course, it is because of Roy that 24 years ago, when um, uh, I had the opportunity to, I became a an Aquarian endorser. And the reason I did so is that... Um, Aquarian had, you know, I was playing with the band Royal Crown Review, kind of a retro style band, and they were, Aquarian, under the design of Roy Burns, was producing these amazing modern vintage heads that um, sounded closer to any kind of old school calfskin vibe than anything else on the market. And that's what sold me on Aquarian. Of course, Roy being involved, the Aquarian products are just the bomb extremely well-made, extremely durable. I could go on and on with stories about being on the road, sound men, you know, me expecting to have them, them wanting me to change my drum heads. Nope, these sound great. You know, Aquarian, Roy Burns. When I got into drum history and started interviewing drummers of uh, older generations, Roy was one of the first guys that I interviewed. And we had an amazing interview and he was... uh disarming. You know, so many people in the industry are friendly and schmoozy. And uh, Roy is a great guy, very friendly, but he did not hold back in his opinions about the position of drummers in the world and, and how we're treated. And uh, he really, uh, you know, was about uh, drummer's uh, drummers lib, you could say, because he he was, um, you know, very forthright about uh, standing up for our rights as we are often sort of shoved to the back of the band and blamed for a lot of different things. So So there was Roy Again, and uh, it just seemed that throughout my whole life, Roy Burns has been uh, a consistent as far as somebody that was a, a figure um, uh, to be respected, a figure that was teaching, a figure that was providing amazing uh, products to, to use a figure of quality, a figure of integrity, a figure of intensity and I think even though as a drummer. You know, because he left the business in 1980, pretty much as a performer, uh, he, you know, it maybe is not as well known, there aren't as many videos of him as there are of other guys of his generation, the Buddy Riches, the Louis Belsons, he was maybe a little younger than those guys, but, um, you know, uh, to me, he's a he's a giant, and I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to get to interview him, to get to know him, to get to hang with him. He shared a lot of really cool recordings with me. The last time I spoke with him, he sent me a, uh, um, a, 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 a CD uh, that you can't find on CD. He burned it off of a, a vinyl LP of him playing with the Benny Goodman Band in Russia in 1958, and we had a long conversations about that kind of stuff, too. So um, God bless you, Roy. Thank you for everything you have brought to so many people that you have uh, impacted over the years, and uh, we're all going to miss you tremendously. Um, but again, huge debt of gratitude to, to a guy that's just been with me on my entire journey through the drums. Thanks, Roy. Growing up, I was always
2: much more interested in teachers than I was actual players. I, I remember thinking, okay, well, if these are the greatest players in the world, who are the men and women that taught them and and got them to achieve their goals? And obviously, feeling like that, Roy Burns was at the top of my list of great educators of all time. This is a guy that pioneered drum clinics. The The job that I have now only exists because somebody like Roy Burns invented that job and didn't do it just to make money or to be cool or be seen on Instagram because none of that stuff was around at that time. He did it because he couldn't help himself from explaining the things that he knew to other people. And that was always amazing to me. I remember the first time I met Roy, I was probably 20 or 21 years old. I had just signed with Aquarian and I was just completely blown away by how interested he was in getting to know me, even though there was no reason for him to get to know me. I wasn't a rock star. I wasn't a famous drummer. I was just an up and coming kid that was truly interested in education. And he didn't seem like I was bothering him in any way. He seemed like he was genuinely interested in, Getting to know me. He also is probably, along with Pete Magadini, one of the most influential people in my entire career because he was one of the few people that while I was touring and while I was doing the rock band thing and wasn't extremely happy doing it, he was one of the people that came to me and said, You know, teaching doesn't have to be a plan B. You seem to be much happier when you explain things to people. And I think you should go all the way in on teaching. And and his advice, because of how much I looked up to him, changed my entire life. The other thing that I think we can forget sometimes about Roy, because we know him as the kind older gentleman of Nam telling people funny stories and talking about his new product and his new coating on the drum heads or whatever, we kind of forget that he was a bad dude on the drums. And when you go back and watch old clips of him, I mean, he was... He was a serious cat. So between his drumming, his educational content through the books that he put out and the articles he wrote for Modern Drummer and what he did with Aquarian Drumheads, it's hard to find someone that had a bigger impact on the drum industry than Roy Burns. Hello, Drummer's Resource.
3: My name is Eric Moore, and I just want to give you a little bit of insight about what Roy Burns meant to me. Roy Burns was a very, very giving person and an amazing musician. Year after year, he would come to NAMM show and he would just give back and show people the differences in ways of sticking and holding drumsticks and always just being an inspiration to many, many people. My last occasion of meeting Roy was very, very great. It was when I did the Missy Elliott Get Your Freak On video and I got to play an open drum solo in front of Roy. And he gave me a standing ovation, he clapped for me and pretty much told me how great of a musician that I was and just hearing that from somebody that I look up to and that I love as a person, just really, really made me feel very, very special. Roy Burns, this is Eric Moore and I love you. Thank you so much for everything that you've done for drumming.
2: Roy was a champion, excelling in every aspect of the music business, and was a true legend who left us an incredible legacy. It's the other sense of the word champion that can be applied to Roy that has great meaning for me, and I suspect for many others as well. Roy was the drummer's champion by being our advocate, teacher, and helper. Roy was always mentoring and looking out for us every step of the way. And
0: now, the interview with the amazing Roy Burns. Great to have you, Roy. Thank you so much for doing this. Again, I mentioned, you know, off air that I started playing Aquarian in, in 2005 and have been playing religiously ever since, and thankfully now I'm, I'm part of the Aquarian family. So I would just like to publicly, you know, thank you for, for the great job that you guys do over there at Aquarian, and and I applaud you on, on all the great success you've had.
4: Well, we've been in business 35 years.
0: Which is no small feat.
4: That's quite an undertaking, you know?
0: Mm-hmm to
4: keep everything going and keep it together, but uh, we've managed to do it.
0: And and do it well you have, so so congratulations on that. And I would I always like to get the backstory of of my guests. And you have such a a long and and successful career. I mean you've You've done everything in this business. Not only do you own aquarium, but you've, you know, you were an inventor or at least the pioneer in, in drum clinics. You've played with Benny Goodman. You've, you've done studio work. You've performed on national television, written for modern drummer. You've been an in-demand teacher. Uh, you've written a handful of books. I mean, you have, you have literally done everything that you could possibly do in the drumming community. So where did it all start? How did this whole thing come about?
4: Well, I was playing on the sidewalk in front of my house in Emporia, Kansas. And uh, during World War II, they had some marching exercises at the college two blocks away. And the guys that are in the the ROTC today were doing some marching maneuvers. And I would run away from home and run along beside the drummers. So one day, they took a break, and this young guy came over, and he says, You play the drums? I said, Sure. (laughs) I was like five years old. And he said, Let me see you play. So I played a little bit on his parade drum. He held it for me. And he went to see my mother and said, If you don't give this kid lessons, it's going to be a crime. Now, whoever that unknown soldier boy was, I don't know, but he did me a great favor because my mother really became my champion and made sure that i got lessons and opportunities to practice in fact my parents built a small room on the corner of our house so i have a place to set up the drums and practice all day
5: really
0: which
4: was really, was really pretty nice yeah
0: wow so you started playing you started taking lessons at five
4: no i started taking lessons probably a year or two later
0: okay okay
4: and uh with a local college uh, teacher he was a violinist But he taught me a few things that I never forgot. And he used to say, Roy, you have good hands, but you must learn to use your noodle. Like (laughs) think before you hit something, you know? Right. (laughs) And I never forgot that. Use your noodle, you know? But uh, he he was really great because he concentrated on the music. When you came out of the lesson after, it wasn't just rudiments or just drumming. You got a picture of music. And I was always very fortunate, uh, I thought, to have that.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot now you know, a lot of times now people the the music sort of escapes them and there's a lot of, of just playing the drums and not playing playing music. Would you agree with that?
4: Yeah, but no more than ever. It it the percentage is about the same. There's just there are more drummers now, and they're more good ones. Right. More good young players than ever before. When I was coming up there were a lot of drummers but most of them didn't know how to play the instrument very well. And uh, they couldn't read. And so I got into uh, playing with people much older than me at a very young age because I could play the older guys' music. I could read, and I had good technique. Right. So I was able to play the music, you know. Hmm. And a lot of the guys were either couldn't read or didn't have good technique or couldn't make the tempos not without talent, but they just hadn't had any kind of training. Right. Because it was so hard to get information in those days. You just couldn't find anything that was worth a darn, you know? And when you finally found an article or something or a photograph or somebody giving you good advice, it was rare and it was really hard to find. Now we've got so much information available. It's tough to dig through it and find out what the good stuff is.
0: You know. Yeah. You know, I I think of that a lot that at, at some point, it's really good, and then you know it can be over. You know, it's almost like overstimulating to a and You don't know what's good and what's bad because if if you don't know how to do something, and you go on YouTube to watch it, you could be watching somebody doing it wrong, and then you learn how to do it wrong.
4: Well, like I've always told people, uh, I asked uh, on clinics. I used to ask uh, anybody here taking drum lessons, <clears throat> and invariably there would be a couple of guys who didn't take lessons. I said, why not? They said, well, I want to have an original style. I said, are you in a band? He says, no. And I said, how are you going to get a style? You have to play with other people and learn the basics before you can worry about having a special style.
5: Mm-hmm. But
4: I said, uh, why is it that you don't want to take lessons? He said, I want to be a self-taught player. I said, everybody is self-taught. No teacher can teach you how to play, but he can teach you how to avoid a lot of mistakes, right. like using the wrong books or listening to the wrong guys or how to hold the sticks. The teacher can give you the mechanics and the basic knowledge, to, so you can learn to teach yourself how to play music. Because eventually, you have to sit down at the drums and play music with other musicians,
0: mm-hmm. and
4: that's where the real learning begins. So we're all self-taught, you know.
0: Right. I never, you know, I never thought of it like that because I do know that so many people are afraid of of getting boxed in. Or you know, I've I've heard people say, "I don't want to learn my rudiments because I, you know, I want to have feel when I play." And I think you don't you don't think that Elvin Jones had feel, or you don't think that Steve Gadd has feel, you know?
4: Yeah. <laughs> Which well, is, again, the music is Buddy Rich once said he asked his piano player for an arrangement of Jasmine Blues, an old man tune. He said, "Why should we play that tune?" He says, "Look, music is just interpretation. Didn't they teach anything in college?" <laughs> <laughs> in his usual caustic manner, but. Uh, right. His point was well taken. It's, it's it's you interpret the music. Sure. That's what makes the style, that makes the individual, makes you different. But if you're not playing with other people, you can't sit at home and develop an individual style and then go out and inflict it on some unsuspecting band. You know? Right, right. <laughs> you have to have some cooperation, some exchange, you know.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: My, Absolutely. My theory is always just put the music first. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to play to help the music, what would you play? And do that and then you'll sound good. Or you have a better chance of sounding good. Rather than working out some tricky fill in and then trying to insert it in some place where it doesn't
0: belong. hmm So here's the rub because I think there is a I think there's some challenges for people to get to that point because I know that, you know, even myself as a younger player thought Man, I I think what I'm playing is really good and and musical, and then years later you realize that it's not. So, it's sometimes it's a little it's it's tough because you don't know what you don't know. So, how do you suggest that that people are playing and serving the song, and how to really how to really get to that headspace?
4: I met Sonny Igo when I was like 15 years old. He came through Emporia, Kansas. With uh, Woody Herman's band. And I went back and talked to him on his break. He was kind enough to talk to me his entire intermission. And then I hooked up with him again in New York and I wanted to take some lessons. So I went up to take a lesson he said, you're not going to pay me for today. I said, what's the matter? He says, "Uh, you don't need any more lessons. You just need to go out and play more. Get get in there and play. Mm -hmm. And I thought, he doesn't want to teach me the (laughs) secrets. I was so (laughs) disappointed. But when I look back, he was the most honest with me, because he could have taken the money for the lessons. But he just said, you you know enough technique, you know? You mm-hmm. don't have to be a technical wizard. You just, as uh, Ray Bryant, the famous piano player, said to me one time, you just have to have enough technique to play what you want to play. Right. You don't have to be a technical genius to play with a band, you know? Mel Lewis was one of my favorite drummers, and he didn't have great technique. Right. He had a very personalized technique, and he got a great sound, and I loved his playing, but... Uh, no one would ever call him a technician, you know mhm sure so it's, its he had to figure out a way to get the music out yeah if you if you keep concentrating on the music and trying to find ways to make the music sound good, you'll be all right,
0: mhm, yeah, that makes total sense it's you know because I think a lot of people one you know the the technique thing gets a little sensationalized and and you know the chops and all that stuff, and then when people when people start playing they feel like that's what they have to play rather than rather than just saying okay let me let me sit back and let me let this let me let everything breathe a little bit here and and sort of let the music dictate what i play rather than you know dictating what the music sounds like just sort of let it naturally happen
4: i'll tell you where the trap is when there you think there's two or three drummers in the room you start <laughs> yeah. playing to those drummers instead of playing to the guys in the band and serving the music and you, like I remind guys, those other drummers aren't going to get you a job. right? In fact, they'll probably say bad things about you. You know, people can be kind of small
5: mm-hmm. sometimes, you know.
4: The other thing that happens is you're playing this gig and you're doing fine and you look up and there's three or four named drummers in the audience. Well, the immature guy is going to see. well, I'm going to play something to impress him. And he tries to play something he doesn't have any control over and messes the music up Incredibly, then he loses his confidence and he feels terrible. Mm
5: -hmm.
4: The smart guy just plays the music, plays what he knows he can play, and nails it to the floor. That will impress those guys.
5: Sure. Now the
4: the guys that are big name players that don't go to clubs to hear a guy foul up or mess up, they generally go there because there's somebody there's something interesting happening musically. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just dinner, you know. Right. But uh, I was. Clinic in New Jersey, and we went to this uh, place to have a, a little bite to eat after the uh, clinic. And they had a dance floor, and the only table we could get was near the edge of the dance floor. So the, the nice little trio playing, and suddenly during this tune, I hear the drummer with his back going da 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 I said, "I've been spotted." <laughs> <laughs> I liked him better before he did that. Dude. Right, right.
5: Yeah, so I think you know. I know. Them. I've
0: definitely been in that situation where you know somebody walks in the room and I'm kind of like, oh man, here we go. Now you know, I, when I, now I'm just you know I play the way that I play. And that's that's about all. So I'm not. I can't. I'm not going to try to impress anybody. Well, I will, but I'll just try to impress them by just playing well. Well, the but, best
4: way to impress them is to play a little less and nail it.
0: Right. Right. Because you get count. You
4: get the points for what you nail. You get demerits for what you don't nail, you
0: know? Right, right. So if
4: you just, uh, when in doubt, simplify, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
4: I think it's a pretty good rule.
0: Yeah, I agree. So now, you, I know that um, at one point you moved to New York, and what? so what year did you move there? Around
4: 1955.
0: 1955. So how uh, long did, I mean, you weren't there very long before you started playing. Who You started first with Benny Goodwin?
4: No, I uh, got a job with uh, Woody Herman's band. Sonny Igel had recommended me, and I auditioned, and I got the job. Oh, okay. After about six months, I was at home in New York City, and I get a call from Benny Goodman's manager. He said, Benny would like you to come up to Carnegie Hall rehearsal studios and play with him today. I said, but I'm with Woody. I can't do that. He said, look, Benny will take care of that. He just wants to hear you play. He's heard about you. He'd like you to come up and play. So I said, okay. So I get up to the rehearsal studio, and it's Mel Powell, about six feet five, a genius piano player and arranger, but I didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. And Benny, no bass player. I'm thinking, what's going on? So we start to play, and Benny says, Let's play Lady Be Good. So we play this tune. I'm playing Brushes. We play one tune after another for two hours. Nobody says anything. Benny puts his horn down at the end of one tune and says, Okay, be at the Waldorf tonight, wear a dark suit so uh, i I had to ask uh, Mel Powell, the piano player, where is the the Waldorf I didn't even know right i I had one dark suit for well, I had one suit period, so I get up to the Waldorf and it's like a sunken ballroom with the dance floors down in the and the, the table is in tears. So I sat up in a corner and listening to the band, I don't know what's going to happen. and the manager comes up and says, uh, you know they play a a dance set, a concert set, and a dance set." So the manager comes up and says, Benny wants you to play the next concert set. Well, they have a drummer, so I go down there to meet the drummer, it's Alexander. Mm -hmm. He was very nice to me. He said he'd given his notice, he was leaving the band, so not to worry about him.
1: And he said, this is a hell
4: of a way to audition in front of a live audience, (laughs) reading on somebody else's drums with no rehearsal. He said, I'll talk you through the charts. I'll help you as much as I can. I hope you can do it. So I did pretty well. And Mel Powell leaned to the piano and said, congratulations, young man. And Mousley said, wow, you played that show exactly like I do. You really listen. He said, I hope you get the gig. Just play as steady as you can, because time to Benny Goodman is music, or music is time. They're interchangeable, but just just play as steady as you can. And I got the gig. Hmm.
0: That is a I had,
4: I, I that's had a heck way to audition. To- well, when I look back, it's kind of scary. But at the time, I was so young, I wasn't. I, maybe I wasn't smart enough to be scared. Right. <laughs> I had nothing to. I had nothing to lose. You know. Right. But the Benny uh, and the Daniel Glass was telling me at the NAMM show last January. He said every drummer that he talks with who worked with Benny Goodman didn't like the experience. I said yeah, I had a great experience, he even having on a retainer. So I got paid when we didn't work. And he said, "How how did you do that?" And I said, "Well, it just kind of came about. You know, he wanted me, and I was busy one time, and he wanted the first call on my services, and so uh, I got along with Benny very well. He let me play uh, my own version of Sing, Sing, Sing. I didn't have to stick to the Gene Krupa format.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: He featured me in but brush solos and stuff. And that, the only thing he ever said to me was, "I just need a drummer in my band. I don't want a hero." That is, if the trumpets or the trombones are messing up, I don't want you to play louder, then I have a problem in another section. Right. So I'll tell you what, I've been standing in front of a band for a long time. If we need some new horn players, we will get some new horn players. Now, you play the drum part, I'll play the clarinet part, we'll go on fine. And that's about all you said to me in three and a half years.
0: Hmm.
4: Not much, you know. But it was the greatest job description I ever got.
0: Yeah. So why why do you think it was the people didn't enjoy playing with him?
4: He was such a stickler for the time. He was the yeah. greatest at, at counting off tempos. And when we were playing a fast tempo, like 1-2-3-4, he's tapping his right foot, standing up, playing da, 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 da. He could have been playing a bass room part, you know. <laughs> but uh, he had such great time that uh, it was electric. When I first joined the band, we were rehearsing. There were just the four of us in the room, and we're playing this fast tempo, really bright. And Benny is wailing like there's 10,000 people out there. I, I couldn't believe it. So I jumped up from the drum seat with Th- Tim arms. and said, Benny, that was great. He said, oh, okay. <laughs> he was, but he didn't mind it, you know. He was right. just a little kid telling him he sounds great. Because I looked like I was about 17. Right. I weighed 119 pounds. <laughs> That's skinny.
0: And how old were you? 21. 21.
4: But I looked like I was 17. You
0: know? Yeah. I think I've always had that right. that same thing. I've always looked young, so people, you know, people are like, "How old are you?" Eighteen? I'm like, oh, "I'm 25."
4: <laughs> right. Well, it, sometimes it works against you. Cause people don't think you're that experienced. You know? Right. But overall, it worked out for me. But I got along great with Betty. She had to be able to play brushes. That was the number one rule. That's why my audition was with brushes. I later found out if you can't pass the brush audition, you never got to play with a band. Yeah. So that's first. Then you got to play with the band. Then you have to read. He had to be able to play the flag where was like sing, 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 and the up tempos because he played some pretty, pretty fast tempos at times. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there, there were a lot of uh, requirements to the game.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: But I, I loved it. I had a great time doing it.
0: It's interesting because now you know the, I, I, the times have definitely changed, and I don't see as much, I don't see as much, uh need, not not that I don't see the need for it, but I don't see a, a lot of requests for, you know, people who can read really well and people who have really in-depth brush knowledge and things. And that, you know, that makes me a little sad to think about.
4: Well, you have to exist in your own time. right? Whatever's going on at the time, whatever the music is, you have to relate to it in order to get the good gigs, you know? Hmm. So it's like when, when Steve Gadd came on the scene, Part of it was his great creativity, but he was playing the music that was there in front of him that was happening at the time. Right. So uh, he was the perfect guy. that he, he changed the way a lot of people play, you know.
5: Mm-hmm. It
4: was quite an accomplishment. Yeah. But there were a lot of great players. A lot of them didn't get the, a lot of credit. Like Sonny Igo was one of the great big band drummers
0: mm-hmm. of
4: all time, and he just never got any publicity. He wasn't a publicity guy. He was very modest, you know.
0: Is he related to Tommy Igo?
4: He's his father.
0: Is that his father? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I thought Tommy's it was.
4: Father. Yeah. And he, he got me in my first studio gig uh, subbing for him on the Merv Griffin show. And he went to CBS to play a show with Jackie Gleason. He said, you want to sub for me? Merv Griffin? I said, sure. You know? So we had a trio. Then Merv went to a 12-piece band in an afternoon show. And uh, we had a guest band meter every week. So, one week we had Count Basie, which was a thrill. Then, next week we had Duke Ellington, and then we had Guy Lombardo, and Xavier Cougar, and Sammy Kay, and Lester Lannan. So, you never knew what you were going to get. So, Guy Lombardo is the guest. We play one arrangement of his each day out of the five days. So, uh, he's not doing too well. This music doesn't translate well to concert style on television. Right. We're playing The Little White Bird That Cried or some nonsense like that. you know. (laughs) And then from the last day, he comes in with South Rampart Street Parade, which is an old Dixieland tune. Mm -hmm. So we played it. And you couldn't get this chart off the ground if you set fire to the music. (laughs) It was just horrible. So we played the four-bar drum break and the chord. And much to our surprise, it's greeted by wild applause. And he just can't believe it. He's got a big grin on his face and he walks off the stand to go over to talk to him. We're still holding the note, and this is live TV. No chance to redo it. So I looked over at the horn players, and and you see their eyes flicking back and forth like somebody did something. (laughs) So I hit the Christ symbol very hard, bang! And you hear, (laughs) it's sucking in of air sound coming out of the brass section. Thank God he hit the symbol, I was going to pass out, you know? (laughs) That was one of the more entertaining moments on that show. (laughs) (laughs) Then the time Duke Young was on, he had a tricky arrangement of Perdido. It was in three bar phrases. So it was a tricky introduction and fairly black tempo. And Duke comes on and goes, One of the 4 And raises was on up in the air. And the band came in on time. Really? And our conductor was staying over the side, the regular conductor for the show. His mouth was hanging wide open, and he came up afterwards and said, how did you guys ever come in? And he said, I thought there was going to be a train wreck. I said, how do you do it? And one guy says, well, man, it was Duke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you had to come in right. You know, but
0: we didn't have a choice. <laughs>
4: yeah, but it was funny. Everybody came in. <laughs>
0: It's amazing the the stories that you have, and you know the 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 people that you've played with, and and you know the places that you've played, and, and the things that you've done. And we we haven't even scratched the surface of the stuff that you've done. I mean, at this point, when you were doing the Merv Griffith show, how old were you at that point?
4: Oh, late twenties.
0: Late twenties. So, at what point did you start to sort of become you know an an in demand teacher and and start writing books and things like that?
4: Well, uh, a drummer by the name of Lou Malin, who's no longer with us, and I used to practice together in New York. So we were practicing this finger technique, and we developed a couple things on it that nobody else had done. So we got the idea, like, maybe we should write a book. So Lou went on the road with a singer called Demita Joe, and he was out of town, and I went up to see Henry. I told my wife, he's going to turn me down. I just know it. So I talked to Henry about this finger control book, and... What we had written up and so forth. And Henry says, Great idea. We'll take photographs. We'll do this. We'll do that. And I didn't know what to say because I was so prepared for him to say no that I was just shocked. And he said yes, you know. Hmm. So uh, we get the finger control book going and it it did very well uh, for the book of that time, you know. Not Hmm. huge numbers, but very well. And uh, that was the beginning of my entry into writing books because Henry was so organized. I learned a lot from him about how to put a book together. Right. And, uh, it was a very interesting experience because, uh, I, just before that, I, t- I took, I'd taken some lessons from him because when I joined Benny Goodman, Sing, 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 is 15 minutes long with a drum solo in it. So, by the time I got to the last course to play the solo, my arms were shaking so much I could hardly play it the solo. I didn't have any strength. So, uh, Sonny, I go again, said, we'll go see Henry Adler. I said, that old guy? He said, I think you should take some lessons from Henry. So I go in there, and Henry says, play some paradigms on the pad. So I play some paradigms. He said, okay. He said, can you double that? I said, yeah. So I played it twice as fast. He said, that's very good. He said, "Now you can't double it again. I said, yeah, I can't. He said, no, you can't. I said, I can. He said, let me see. I doubled it again, he almost fell off his chair laughing. <laughs> He said, that's fast. He said, that's really fast. But you don't have any leverage. You're not getting any volume. So he started teaching me this grip with a very stiff-looking wrist exercises. I said, what's this going to do? He said, it's going to strengthen your wrist and your hand. I said, Henry, I've been playing a long time. I don't know about this. He said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. You do this for two weeks exactly like I show it to you. And if you don't show an immediate improvement, I will give you double your money back. I said, well, that sounds fair enough. Yeah. And uh, I never had an endurance problem after that. I could play longer and louder and faster than most guys, and I was the little guy, you know.
0: Wait, after two weeks?
4: Well, after after... two weeks, I didn't have a problem, but it kept improving once I got the idea. And then what I learned was uh, I had an exercise that my teacher in Kansas City had given me, Jack Miller. It was eighth notes, triplets, and sixteenth notes, and you had to play them all evenly with no accents. Well, I noticed that when I went from the 8th to the triplets, the sound changed on a pad. And when I went from the triplets to the 16th, the sound changed again. So I said, I must be doing something, but I don't know what it is. So I realized I was tightening up as I went to the faster note value. Mm
5: -hmm. So
4: I learned how to play all those three note values at a fast speed without any change in the sound, which meant I didn't tighten up. Because the tendency is when you go faster, you tighten up, and the sound gets smaller, and the pitch goes up. Right. So I learned to do that, and I could uh, play single strokes for 20 minutes or 10 minutes or 5 minutes without getting tired because I just learned how to move the stick and, and let the stick do the work and not uh, trying to force it by using my muscles. So I learned to stay relaxed at any tempo and any volume level, and that helped my playing a lot. And that came about with the things I had put together from the, my teacher Jack Miller and from Henry Everett.
0: So now do you teach, Do you, like, I'm really interested in the in the wrist exercise and the, the hand exercise that you just talked about. So is that in, that's not in finger control, is it?
4: No, it's in a new book with, uh, what's the company, Kindor Publishing. Mm-hmm. It's called the Relaxed Hand Technique. It has all the exercises I learned to teach myself, how to get a sound, how to get a, Uh, an accent without tightening up and how to use your ear to tell if you're doing it right technically. Mm -hmm. See, that's that's what they don't teach you. They teach you rudiments and you play them over and over again, but they don't teach you how to hear them. Right. See, if you listen, figure on a good pad, you can tell when you tighten up or when you get too loose by the sound. And You learn how to follow the sound and that teaches your muscles what to do.
5: Right.
4: It's just like the music. You put the sound first and then figure out how you did it. And I have a book on that now and it's doing very well, I must say.
0: Well, I will definitely I'll make sure that I include all the information in the uh in the notes for this interview so that everybody can check it out. And yeah. so is that wrist exercise in there as well? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm in, I'm just really I'm really interested in in checking that out because I feel like the same thing happens for me when, when I start to get faster, things start to get quieter.
4: Yeah, so. you tighten up. Well, uh, there's uh, four solos recorded live and in a studio. That uh, I did uh, at different times. Uh, we put them in a CD in with a book, which is kind of neat. Awesome. The other thing that happened like that while we're on the subject, I used to go to Birdland and sit over in what was called the bullpen. that You could sit on a hard wooden chair, just pay an admission price, to give, get a beer and nurse it, and just sit there all the evening. Well, what was great about it was you sat off to the side and you could see the drummer's feet as well as his hands. Mm-hmm. And i go there and watch Philly Joe and Buddy Rich and Louie Belson, all these guys. And I noticed that Buddy and Louie in particular would play certain patterns between the left hand and the bass drum, and you could never figure it out. Those guys played so much that when you left the the club, you couldn't remember anything. It's like listening to Henny Youngman. Right. He says so many one-nighters, you can't remember one of them. Right. <laughs> so I developed a, a discipline to go there, and I would watch Buddy Rich's right hand for one whole tune. I wouldn't take my eyes off the right hand, no matter what he played. Then I would watch the left hand for one whole tune, then the right foot for one whole tune, then the left foot for one whole tune. And I disciplined myself to do that until I could see what the patterns were, and I was able to take them apart and put them back together again. That's how I learned to play all that stuff. And that's in a book called uh, Solo Secrets of the left handed Bass Drum. And it has a, a, a DVD in it at the last clinic I did, where I demonstrate all those patterns and how they how I use it in their playing.
5: Hmm.
4: And I'm really proud of that book, because uh, it took 40 years to write it.
0: Jeez.
4: <laughs> it had been in the back of my mind, and I just never got around to it, and then I finally had a chance, and I thought, I'm going to put this in a book and see what it does. I'm, I'm glad that it's out there, because at least guys can figure out what these great players
0: play. Now,
4: you know, they're all gone, and the videos are nice, but uh, it's pretty hard to figure out what they're playing sometimes, you know?
0: Yeah. It definitely is. I mean, uh, there's multiple times where I'm looking at something over and over and over again on YouTube, and I just, you know, I, I can't figure it out. I can't go see the person live play it. Right. So, you know... Well, this
4: has them all notated. It's written out. Oh, awesome. And it's really really kind of neat. It uh, changes the way you play, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. I'm actually, i'm take, I'm taking notes here to make sure I have all this stuff written down.
4: I used to tell students, I said, you know, you're thinking... And it's taking you as far as you can go, and you're at a standstill. The student would say, how do you know that? I said, because you came to see me. If your ideas are still working, you wouldn't need me. Right. You need someone like me to give you a fresh look at what you're doing. And I said, if you don't change the way you think, you're going to be the same schmuck with a few new licks. Yep. And that's not going to really help you or me. Mm -hmm. Now, what we have to do is change how you look at the instrument, how you think about playing certain things and it'll give you another point of view. My point of view is not all-inclusive. I don't mean that, but it's at least different, and right. it's a little more advanced than what you're doing. So you take some lessons from me, get a different point of view, take some lessons from another guy who's who's good and well-recommended, and before you know it, you change your thinking about the instrument, which is the whole idea, not just teaching a guy rudiments, you know?
0: Right, and, you know, I think that a lot of people – Think so much about it that they're not thinking anything at some point because they're, you know, I, I get so many emails where people just ask me, "Hey, I, I'm really, uh, I'm really excited and 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 I have a, a ton of energy and I want to practice. I just I don't know what to practice. What should I pra- What should I go over? You know, and it's such well, a it's such a broad question. But well, I'd the love teacher to hear.
4: Can teach you how to practice. He can't teach you how to play. Right. But the people overlook that. Having someone teach you how to practice is a big thing
5: mm-hmm.
4: because, uh, you know, uh, how you use your time, you suddenly realize that uh, three years have gone by and you don't know any more than you did three years ago. Mm-hmm. Your time has a way of slipping away from you. you know. I'm going to be 80 in two months. Mm-hmm. and I never thought I would live this long. It's like the old joke said, if I know I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. Right. <laughs> Actually, I'm in pretty good shape. and very lucky. But uh, it, it seems that uh, you have to learn as much as you can while you're young. Right. And you kind of have to put your ego in your back pocket. The other thing that happens is students are afraid when they come in that, that they're going to be rejected, that maybe the teacher will think they're good enough and don't, will not want to teach them some kids have that uh, thing to deal with isn't it? most of the teachers are pretty nice guys they're not there to put you down or hurt your feelings but a good teacher can teach you how to practice
0: mm-hmm.
4: and that's worth that's win and gold you know.
0: So you've heard me mention numerous times about the new kits that are coming out from Mapex and uh, some revolutionary stuff that they've been working on. And they finally released all of the information about it, about the Black Panther Design Lab series drum kits. And you have to go to mapexdesignlab.com to learn everything about it. They were not exaggerating when they said it's some revolutionary stuff. They have a new hardware that has uses a magnetic field that hangs the drum. So it's sort of just floating there and you can adjust the tension. You can adjust the sound. And there is a lot more information than I can explain here in 45 seconds. I recommend going to mapexdesignlab.com. You will be blown away by the technological advancements that they've made over there. At Mapex. Check them out. Go to mapexdesignlab.com. I have no doubt that as a drummer, you've had ringing in your ears. What you may not realize though, is anytime you have ringing in your ears, that is permanent hearing loss. And it can happen from just playing drums at a low volume for a few minutes. Now you have a couple options. You can get those foam earplugs and they're made for construction workers and snoring spouses and they're they're pretty ugly and they don't really fit well. Or you can get Vibes high fidelity earplugs. These are earplugs that are made specifically for musicians just to lower the decibels by 22 decibels so you get crystal clear clarity while protecting your ear. Plus, they're one size fits all because they have a bunch of different tips that you can use. They're washable, they're reusable, and they're super discreet so people aren't even going to know that you're using them. They're great. So great. In fact, they were even featured on Shark Tank. The best part is I've teamed up with them and you can get a pair of Vibes for 20 bucks delivered right to your door. All you have to do is go to discovervibes.com and use the promo code resource. That is discovervibes.com. Use the promo code resource. You can spend 20 bucks to protect your hearing now or spend a lot of money later in life getting hearing aids and all sorts of different things. Check them out. discovervibes.com. Use the promo code resource. What's your take on practice and, and how to practice? If I came in and took a lesson from you and I said, I don't know how to practice. I I go in there, and I'm in there for three hours, but I don't really feel like I'm getting anything done, and I don't feel like I'm getting any better.
4: Okay, the first thing we have to do is assess where you're at. What can you do that's good, and what are you having trouble with? Mm. What are you having fighting? Then we identify those things, and then we say, like I had this student who could not play doom-to-doom-to-doom-to-doom on the bass drum in a bossa nova or a salva. So I had to figure out, how am I going to get this guy to do this? So I had him play eighth notes with his hands, dot, 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 dot and then with the bass drum, boom, 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 using the hands of the guide. Well, after about six weeks, he'd go boom, to boom, to boom, to boom, to boom, boom, he had it up to tempo. But I had to find a way, to again, to practice it. So he used his hands to guide his foot. Mm-hmm. And that got his foot even, because his foot was very uneven prior to that, on those things. So you have to identify the problem, come up with a solution, and then see if it works, and then modify it as as need be. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
4: and that's what a good teacher can do.
0: Yeah, because I, you know, I a lot of people contact me, and I think they just get into the practice room and they they sit down behind the drums, and then they say, "Okay, I don't know what the practice." I I, you know, the best advice I can give them is I just say try something that you you know that you're not good at. Find a find something that you're you're lacking, you know, most drummers know what they're not good at and what they are good at. <laughs> well, know? one of the
4: problems is the myth that if you learn how to do it yourself, it'll be better than if someone taught you how to do it. Right. My, my answer, answer to that is when the red light goes on in the recording studio, and we're spending thousands of dollars an hour to make a record. Nobody cares how you learned how to play. Right. They don't care if you beat up your mother. They want to know, can you play this part now? And if you can't, tell me so we can get another drummer in here. Right. If you mess this up, you'll never work in this town again. Right. So tell me the truth. So all they care about is did you learn it, Right. not how you learned it. Mm-hmm. So how you learned it doesn't matter. What matters is did you learn it, and then how did you apply it. I agree. It's up to you to apply whatever you learned to the music so you can have a, a good experience you know?
0: here. Mm-hmm. Speaking of how you learned it, uh, many of us, myself included, have learned... From going to drum clinics and you are, you know, one of the inventors or, you know, one of the pioneers of of the drum clinic. Uh, can we talk about that a little bit about how the the sure. concept of that started? And and uh, I mean, look, we, we all know where it's gone, but where it started is, is interesting.
4: Well, what happened was I was a new endorser in Rogers Drums and Don Kennedy of Southern Illinois University said, would you come out and do a clinic? I said, okay. So I went to Henry Adams and said, what's a clinic? And <laughs> he gave me some suggestions which weren't very good. And I get out there and, uh, in Illinois and uh, trying to do a clinic. And I'm fumbling all over the place. And finally, Don asked a question. And some other kids asked a question. Then I felt at ease answering questions. And he said, you know, you did very good as once you got into the question-answer session. And you played great. So what you have to do is prepare something so you have a presentation to make before the clinic starts so that you have something that you can readily demonstrate that is helpful to students. So I did that, and then Rogers Drums said, you know, uh, every time we want you to do a clinic, you're doing a record date, and when you're not working, we don't need you. Why don't you just come to work for uh, Rogers Drums and do clinics and be an in-house artist in residence, kind of? Mm-hmm. I said, "Well, that's an interesting idea." And so my wife said, "No, you must be crazy." You know, <laughs> I said, "No, I think I'll do it." So, uh,
0: so I did that mean no more, like no touring or no more, no more playing?
4: Well, that was the question. See, I told him, "I'll do this if I if I get a chance to play, I'm going to go play."
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And he said, "Well, how are you going to work that out?" Well, I said, "Very simple. If I get a chance to play, I'm going to go play a gig, and when I get back, I'll do the Rogers thing." And uh, I wasn't looking to do any extended traveling but I wanted some freedom so uh, they said well we don't know if we'll let you do that I said well I'll tell you what you guys are so stupid when I asked for a contract you wouldn't sign a contract with me so if you don't like what I'm doing I'll just put my clothes in the bag and go to New York City where my wife has the two kids in the apartment Right. so it's up to you so uh, they said well you're going to play gigs at night I said I right. what time are you going to come into the office if you're playing a gig I said noon <laughs> <laughs> and I said oh that can't happen so the next morning I'm in the office at eight thirty. before Don Kennedy came in he came into the office says, what are you doing here I said well, I didn't play it last night I was at your house remember <laughs> so I gave him a little bit of a hard time but I just wasn't going to be trapped by that corporate mentality you know right where they right. own you you know mm-hmm. so once the clinic started to get a Plan. We got a a sales rep by the name of Jack Winkler, who's no longer with us, and he came up with the idea like uh, a dealer would buy two or three drum sets. I would come in and do a clinic and help them with the product knowledge and work with their drum teacher and stuff like that, and then we would sell drums. But there was no charge for the clinic other than they had to buy equipment. So that was a great deal for the uh, music store because it wasn't money out the window. It was invested in products he could sell.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Well, it became such a successful program, I started doing two weeks of clinics out of every month, eight months out of the year. And I was on the road a lot. But uh, one of the things the guys would say, well, when Roy comes here, we sell stuff. The other guys come here play a drum solo and say there are any questions or leave. And uh, So I try to make sure that uh, every person who attended the clinic would get something out of it, start with some basics, then have a question-answer session, do some playing, demonstrate some stuff, have an interaction with the audience, and uh, it developed into quite a thing. I was the main clinician doing it on a full-time basis, the first one to do that.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And I don't think it'll ever happen again, because it was just the right moment, the Rogers room, CBS owned it. So I asked a friend of mine, Should I take this job or not? I said, Roy, who else is going to pay you to make you famous? Right. And so, the point. <laughs> so I had intentions of maybe forming a group at some point, but as I got deeper in the business thing, that's another subject. But uh, did you have any more questions on the uh, clinics?
0: No, but I'm interested. Well, I have. Was there one? I'm guessing, you know, it was a conscious decision, obviously, but. Was there some some hesitation on your on your part because it meant not playing as much as as you used to play, and then uh, I but I would also like to ask a question about the the business side of things too. But if you want to answer that one first,
4: well, the uh, the playing thing was no problem because I was in great shape. I was very experienced. I was at the peak of my physical powers around thirty years old, and. Uh, I, I would sit in with groups and when I traveled and often use local musicians on the clinics. So I was doing a lot more playing than most people realize. Oh, okay. And then that kept me in good shape. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't a problem. Uh, in terms of uh, keeping my chops up, already, I had figured out how to do this stuff that nobody else had. Or at least uh, even the guys who could do it, like Louie and Buddy, people like that, they probably couldn't explain it. In fact, Buddy said in England, he said, if you want to know how to play a five-stroke role, we'll wait till Roy Burns comes back. Now, if you wanted to ask me about the band, I'd him ready, you know.
0: Right, right.
4: But uh, they weren't technical guys, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Were you and Buddy close?
4: No, we knew each other. We got along okay. But mm-hmm. uh, well, I wasn't close with him, though. Much closer to Louie. Yeah. But that's another, that's another story, yeah. So what question did you want to ask about the business?
0: Well, you had mentioned that once you got deeper into the business and then you you sort of stopped. um, So did you start to develop a passion for for the business side of things um, as well as the playing?
4: What happened was they were making stupid decisions because I was there 12 years. And uh, what happened was uh, they had the largest foot pedal, which is the smoothest pedal ever, until some recent ones. You could take the beater, hold it back, let it go, and it would go 10 revolutions without stopping. Just It was that smooth. It was mm-hmm. just a pleasure to play it. In fact, Buddy used to use it whenever Bill Ludwig wasn't in the room. <laughs> He'd take the Ludwig pedal off and put the Rogers pedal on. But it was a great pedal. So I get called to a meeting with research and development. They're going to change the... Uh, uh, from needle bearings to nylon bearings in the pedal. I said, why would you do that? He said, well, to save money. So we're selling a lot of pedals. We're doing okay. Said, we'll make more money this way. I said, well, what about the feel of the pedal? He said, Roy, you won't be able to tell the difference. Okay, so he brought the pedal into my office with the uh, new nylon bearings in it. I pulled the beater back, let go of it, and it didn't move. I said, oh, this is beautiful. It won't make one revolution on its own. It's that bad. Can't anybody see that?
0: Right. Well, <laughs> You'll was, never know. No, you'll anyway. never know the difference.
4: <laughs> right. And it was horrible. And we started to get barrelfuls of pedals back from the field. Guys complaining it didn't work. It didn't feel good. They, they wrecked a great product. Mm. So I realized that if you don't have a musician in a position of power in a company, the products are going to suffer because the manufacturing guys and marketing guys, the research guys will all do what they want to do. And it doesn't take into consideration the drummer. <clears throat> we had one of our foremen come to me five years ago. And said, so I found an easier way to make this drum head. I said, well, show me. And he showed me. I said, it doesn't sound as good. He said, yeah, but it's a lot easier to make it. So we're going to make it the hard way, because that's what the guy's paying for. He's paying for a certain sound. And we're not going to cut corners. We're going to make it sound the way it's supposed to sound. Right. <clears throat> and, uh, so I'm that guy at Aquarian. I have a business partner who runs the manufacturing. And, uh. He's a genius at a lot of stuff I couldn't do because I'm Mr. Non-Technique, you know. Right. Low, low tech. That's me. <laughs> but uh, I know what the stuff's supposed to do. Sure. So uh, I realized that you got to have musicians a musician of power. Doesn't have
0: to run everything,
4: but he's got to have some strength.
0: Right. So I went home and
4: told my wife, I said, "I think I'm going to start my home business." She said, "You must be crazy."
0: <laughs> you think you're going to do what?
4: <laughs> yeah, are you out of your mind? You know. I said, "Well, I'm going to do it." So that's how we got aquarium going. So Ron Marquez and myself sat down. He had a powder coating company, which is how we met. And he did all the black stuff on the Rogers pedals and the amplifiers for uh, the Fender. So uh, he he called me up one day and said, I'm not getting any more business out of Fender and Rogers. What's going on? I said, it's so confused here. It's such a mess. I'm going to quit. So, don't do that. Come over today when you get done. I, I've got an idea about starting another business. So, when we sat down, we decided to make accessories. He said, What are you going to call it? I said, Well, your company is called Aquarian Coatings Corporation. I had a mentor in New York City who was an Aquarius. And I said, Let's call it Aquarian. There's no percussion company that I know of that uses the name Aquarian. Mm-hmm. So, that's how Aquarian became the name. And uh, it's uh, served us very well. People seem to like it.
0: Yeah. So what did you guys start with? What accessories?
4: The first product we made was the cymbal spring. Mm -hmm. And then we went through a couple of different versions and we got it perfected. And it still sells well today. It seems to have a life of its own, you know. Mm -hmm. Some countries like it, some countries don't like it. But uh, we sell them on a daily basis and that's been 35 years. And then uh, we made the rapide drumsticks, which we still make some. And the home run was the uh, drum heads for acquiring. Sure. And we did some different things. I brought in a calf head and gave it to my partner. said, why is this so easy to tune? And the other heads are on the market. The plastic ones are generally a problem. Drummer's always saying, help me with the tuning. And we figured out how the collar was designed and the hoop was designed and stuff like that.
1: And uh,
4: we made a, a, a drum head incorporating as many of the uh, uh, qualities of a calf head as possible. So there's no preformed corner where the collar is. It's rounded. So your bearing edge forms the collar into the head rather than the other way around.
5: Mm-hmm. And
4: that's the way a calf head works. You tighten it down, the bearing edge would form the collar into the head. So right. you get a custom fit. And it was held 360 degrees all the way around because it was wrapped. Unlike uh the other stuff is held every quarter of an inch, so that was really our start you know
0: mhm-, and you guys have had multiple advancements and 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 industry first with your with your drum heads along the years as well
4: tremendous. We just finished a, a report called uh, I can send you a copy of it thirty five years of aquarium
0: yeah i I actually have it Chris sent it over to me. Oh, good. And it's funny. Well, I mean, it's impressive when you read it because it is every, you know, every few years it says, Aquarian did this, and then it says, an industry first. <laughs> Aquarian right. did this, an industry first, which is amazing. Um, so let's talk about some of the things that you that you guys have done over over the last 35 years that, that nobody else has really been doing.
4: Well, we still have the best coating on the market. Agreed. It, it doesn't <laughs> chip off. It lasts longer. <laughs> and then... Uh, the most recent success we've had is with this uh, super pad. Mm-hmm. We've invented a practice pad that is the most comfortable pad to play on. The guys play it, and they just can't believe it. And you put it on a, a tom-tom, and the, make it in all the sizes, the standard sizes. You put on a tom-tom, you hear the pitch of the drum through the pad. So if you've got three three pads on three tom-toms, dun, 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 you hear the melody. And on the snare drum, you hear the snares through the pad. And you can even play brushes on it. Mm -hmm. So it's like uh, cut the volume by 90%, get a great feel and a great sound. And you can practice at night without uh, getting arrested or having people call the police on you.
0: And it's really amazing. I mean, the way that it it feels and the way it's just, it's kind of hard to describe because it's, I mean, it's thick, but it's all, it's, it's, you know, it's flexible. The whole entire thing is flexible.
4: Well, we bring drummers in here to our drum room and say, "Try these uh, these pads on this kit, just for a few minutes." Right. And they start to play on them and say, "What's this?" And they can't get them to stop. They say, "This feels so good. I'm going to keep playing." You know. So, mm-hmm. well, we have to we have to close the, the factory here. You know. <laughs> but uh, one guy told me that he first time he said, him, he played for three hours. He couldn't get over how good it felt. They, said they just feel great, you know.
5: Mm-hmm. And they
4: feel very much like a drum.
5: Yeah,
0: they do.
4: A little give, but not too much, you know?
0: hmm hmm
4: So, uh, yeah, I think that's one of our main uh, uh, products. That, and the one we just came out with is, that, you know, the, the greatest fear is breaking a bass drum head during a concert. Yep. Because that's a, a bear to change in all kinds of parts and, what do you do? It takes. With well, a snare drum, you break the snare drum. He's got one tuned and ready. Just plop it on, and you can keep on playing pretty, pretty smoothly. Well, we've invented a, a patch. Uh, that uh, bass drum patch is 12 inches in diameter. It has a special material that he's on the back. You peel this off, and right where the beater went through the head, you put this 12-inch extra piece of mylar on the head. You can play the rest of the night. Mm-hmm. And it sounds so. In other words, it avoids a, a a disastrous problem about stopping the concert to put a head on the bass drum.
0: Right. It's like now, a gigantic no, band aid.
4: Right. Uh, why no one ever thought of it? I don't know. Cause it, it happened to me only once. The beater came loose and popped off the rod, and the rod went into the head and stayed there. And I thought my foot was broken. I thought, God, I have, I have I've injured myself because nothing came back. Right, My foot just went down clunk, and I thought, my God, I can't feel my foot, you know? <laughs> and I later figured out what had happened, but I had to finish the drum solo with no bass drum. So you can't do too much with a snare drum and a couple of cymbals. It's, it's hard. <laughs> the band leader looked at me and said, what was that? I said, I broke the bass drum head, you know?
0: Yeah, I've but only had, had to have... What's that? Go ahead. I was going to say, it's only happened to me once as well, and it turns out that I had a a beater and it was turned a little to the side and the plastic from the beater was sharp, yeah. and I guess it it turned during the song and I didn't notice it and it and it it basically just cut the head, and then it just finally went right through it. So I had to turn the drum around and and play it backwards for the rest of the night. Well, that's the thought, but even that's a hazard. Oh, it was it was horrendous and the and the the bass drum sliding forward because the spurs are <laughs> it's it was a it was a mess, but. I made it through it but and it had a mic hole in it too, so so it wasn't very uh it wasn't very fun but but it worked. But the, the uh the first aid kit that you guys have is will definitely work a lot better.
4: Yeah, I think it's good. The other thing that I noticed when I went through all of the material here thinking about this interview is we are a really high tech company. I'm not a high tech guy, but my partner is and figuring out how to do all these things. And uh, I think a lot of companies, a lot of people don't realize what a high tech outfit we are, you know?
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And that, as you can tell by that list, uh, it, uh, it's, uh, it's quite apparent that we are really high tech, you know?
0: Yeah. And I always, I, I love the fact that you guys are always, you know, pushing the bar and, and doing different things and, and keeping it interesting rather than just putting out the same stuff and, and saying, hey, th- this is a different color. Buy this one instead, you know?
4: Right. Well, it's just like with the endorsements, like yourself. We didn't come after you. Mm-hmm. We don't solicit endorsements. We don't try to steal other companies' endorsements or anything like that. Right. If they if they play aquarium, it's because they want to, because they like what we're doing.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And our my commitment as being one of the owners is, our job is to help drummers play music. Right. That's to be the goal, not to trick them into buying a product or have some outrageous advertising campaign that can't be substantiated or is obviously phony. Whereas we uh, would probably tend to self sell or to understate what we're doing because we want to be taken seriously. Sure. Sure. And, uh, I think that's uh, that's just our personality. Every every company has a personality, mm-hmm. and I think ours is to. Uh, Relate to the drummer who's who's sincere
0: about his playing. You know? mm-hmm. I agree, and you know when when I signed on with you guys, Chris told me he said, you know, Roy tells everyone we're not going to make you famous, but we'll support right. you as you know as long as you're with us, we'll support you as much as we can. Which which I appreciate it because I understand both sides of the business, and I know that a lot of people have the wrong the wrong idea of what an endorsement is, and right. You know, a lot of a lot of the younger generation think I get an endorsement, so that means, you know, one I'm going to be famous, and two I'm going to get a ton of free product, and and that's just the way that it is. And there's this weird thing about endorsements that everyone is just seeking endorsements just to get the endorsements. Can you talk about that a little bit and your opinions of that?
4: Yeah, well, what happened in the business when I was growing up, I first started playing. There was Zildjian Symbols, Ludwig, and Slingerland, and Gretsch. And not much beyond that. So there were only a few companies. I may have left somebody out, but that was that was the core of it. Well, uh, what would happen was if you weren't a, a really good player, you couldn't get an endorsement. You had to be really good to be even considered. Mm-hmm. Popularity had nothing to do with it. And if you couldn't play well, you weren't even going to get in the front door. Well, as companies developed, companies like Aquarian, uh, another drumhead company, Evans came along, Symbol, Sabian, Peisty. Before you know it, there's a plethora of manufacturers, and they all need endorsers. So suddenly guys are getting endorsements that 20 years ago nobody would talk to. Right. And so you had a lowering of the standard just because of the numbers game. Mm-hmm. And the only problem with that is, uh, like I've had guys call up and say, why can't I be an endorser? Well, look, if you apply for an endorsement and you get turned down, we remember that. Why don't you wait until you have some credits until you've accomplished something? Until you achieve something as a drummer, that you achieve something in music. And then we could support you up to some degree based on what you're doing. But we can't run ads on you before you've done anything. If it makes you look foolish, it makes us look foolish. Sure. So you have to, we can't make you a star, that's it, you know.
5: Hmm.
0: Hmm. I tell. Having
4: I, a lot of having a lot of endorsements doesn't mean anything if the conductor can't get you to find one. You know.
0: Right. <laughs> I always think of the, it's sort of the comparison of when they add a new baseball team to the league or a new football team to the league, and I say, well, that's thirty-five people who weren't good enough to be in the league last year who are now in the league.
4: That's so, one way to look at it, and there's some truth
0: in it. You know, so as the that's I think that's how I just I snuck under, the, I snuck in uh, in the back door of Aquarian. So.
4: <laughs> no, you presented yourself, and at the time it was uh, must have made a lot of sense because otherwise we wouldn't have done it. Right. It's like uh, uh, Danny Seraphin is playing Aquarian now,
5: mm-hmm. and he
4: said he had always liked our heads, and we had touched base a little bit over the years, and. Uh, He said, I I would like to play aquarium, but what about the support materials or advertising or whatever? I said, Danny, I'll tell you this much. If we commit to something, you can be assured we will do it, but we can't commit to everything because we're a small company. So we'll tell you up front, no, we can't do this. No, we can't do that. No, we can't do that. We can do this. We can do a certain amount of this, but if we say we'll do it, we will do it. Mm-hmm. Like some counties will promise you the moon and once you get
5: in there, they kind
4: of overlook it, you know? Right. Right. And so we're not looking to have, we're, we're like the Marines. We want a few good men, you know?
0: Right. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm proud to be, uh, to be involved with, with everyone that you have on the roster and to be involved with, with Aquarian as a whole. You guys are great and have always treated me well. And I, I think that, you know, the message for everyone out there is just that, that the, you know, the endorsement thing is not, is not this uh this huge thing that's really gonna be a, a a gigantic game changer in your career. Um, I think you have to put in the work yourself as the artist, or I know you have to put in your work as the artist to uh you know, to get the endorsements and to, to become famous if that's what you want to do or to make your career a success. Uh it's all it's all in your hands and the companies are just there to sort of help you along the way.
4: Yeah, that's about as much as we can do, you know. Mm-hmm. We can't play the gigs for you.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Although, I would love if you came and played some of my gigs.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, I retired in 1997. Yeah. From, from any kind of uh, active playing.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And I just felt that I'd had enough. I wasn't going to play any better than I already had. I was getting older. I was in the early 60s. And uh, the body wasn't responding the way it had in previous years. I went to play a... a Pattern around the drums and some crossovers in it, and I felt this pain in my back, and I thought, I never felt that before. What's happening, you know? Mm-hmm. So I had to realize I couldn't ride two horses at once. Right. I can't right. run a company and also be uh, a good drummer and keep my skills up because there's not enough time in the day, you know? Yeah. So you have to make a commitment, like, like you do to playing the drums. You have to commit to playing them and make that your number one priority. Mm-hmm. Well, I decided I had to choose between that and the aquarium, and because of my age and what I have done so far, I chose aquarium, and I'm glad I did because it's allowed me to continue being in the music business and somewhat of an influence at this late age. You know, sure. I, I don't feel old like I tell people. I'm a young person trapped in this old body. You
0: know. <laughs> yep, I I agree.
4: I, I, I'm at work every day. And I can't wait to get here. And I I still love talking to drummers. In fact, I'm the only owner that answers the phone. If you call up there, you you got a problem, I'll talk to you.
0: You know, uh, a friend of mine was asking me about Aquarian, and and he said... uh, you know, I'm trying to get a. Uh, he's an educator, and he said he was looking to do some stuff with you guys with the educator. I said, just call him. You know, they'll the, somebody will talk to you. So he called me back about an hour later, and he said, well, I I just got off the phone. And I talked to Roy Burns for about a half hour. I said, well, that's fantastic.
4: Well, so, when I was at Rogers Drums, we had dealers calling up saying, I've got a problem, and no one will call me back. So when I we started out here, I told my secretary, any drummer calls, you got a problem. Young, old, whatever make sure you get that call to me. And he said, well, I didn't think you would want those calls. I said, no, those are the calls I want, because I want the guy to know that one of the guys at the top is concerned about them, what their problems are, and what we could possibly do to help
5: them. Right.
4: So they don't feel like they're getting the shuffle, you know.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Or like one guy said, I thought the comedian was very funny. He said, I'd rather be insulted by a person than a machine.
0: Yeah, me too. <laughs>
4: Because I remember being on the phone one time for 20 minutes. I couldn't get a person. I could not get a person. I kept being transferred from one uh, slot to another, and uh, I finally just gave up. Yeah. I never did talk to who I was interested
0: in. I had. I was on. Not to get too far off topic. But I was on. I was calling uh, Verizon for my phone, and I kept saying, you know, they said, "Who do you want to talk to?" And I said, "Billing, billing, billing," and it kept saying, "Excuse me, I didn't understand what you said." And then there were some expletives that I yelled. And then all of a all sudden right. it said, okay, we'll connect you to billing. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I guess I'm not the first person that's done this before.
4: Well, I'm known for having a good joke or two. So I'll tell you a drummer joke, which I found particularly entertaining at uh, Ed Chauncey. All right. Ed Shaughnessy told me, these two ladies are walking through Beverly Hills about six in the evening, and a big frog jumps out of the bushes in front of them and says, quick, pick me up and kiss me on their lips. You break the curse, and I turn into the world's greatest drummer. I can play double, bass, symphony, solo, jazz, big band, trio, brushes, mallets. I'm the world's greatest drummer, but you have to kiss me and break the curse. The lady opens her handbag and throws him in there and locks it. So the other lady said, aren't you going to kiss the frog and turn him into the world's greatest drummer? She says, no way. She said, why not? She said, are you kidding? I can make a lot more money with a talking frog than I can with a drummer. <laughs> Well, that's strictly a joke for drummers. I like it. I like it.
0: I like it. And I, I'm glad that that came from Ed, from Ed Shaughnessy as well. So,
4: <laughs> Well, that was the other thing, too. I had a chance to know all the great drummers, at least a little bit. Not in depth, but uh, I knew Louis pretty well, because he kind of discovered me. He heard me play in a studio in Kansas City, and uh, he played, and then he asked me to play again. And he said, kid, you're as good as you're going to get it to stay in Kansas go to New York or L.A. and study.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: So two years later, I went to New York and went to a clinic he was doing, and he looked at me and he recognized me. And I thought he had that look of terror in his eyes. like, my God, what have I done? <laughs> I hope this kid's not going to ask for money. And then uh, two years later, we were doing clinics for Rogers, for the drummer Ramos, And uh, we were playing fours together, and Louis was always a very generous and gentlemanly person He would always try to make it look good. So we were having breakfast the next day, and he said, I never saw anybody improve that much that fast. Whatever you're doing, as long as it's not illegal, keep it up. And then he said, you know, I know you can play. You know I can play. Why shouldn't we have a good time? I thought, what a great attitude. There you go. And again, he's playing the music and having a good time. I had an ego, you know? Yeah. So Louis was my mentor. I knew him better than all the guys. But he was... uh, Extraordinary person.
0: Yeah, extraordinary players. Well, I didn't know. I mean, I met oh, him. Oh yeah, I met him once, but uh, but you know, never, never got to uh, really talk talk with him or get to know him or anything like that. But I know he was an extraordinary player. I will say that.
4: Well, he told me that he invented the spurs that went into the bass drum shell. See, prior to that, they clipped onto the hoop. You would tighten it down. They would always loosen up. So he said, "Why don't you put the spurs into the bass drum shell?" And they called disappearing spurs. So Gretz did this. Now, the story I got was, I don't know if it's true or not, said to, to Louis, we, we used your idea for the spirits. I said, Well, what did they do for you? And Louis, they said, Thank you. <laughs> so I don't know what the truth is. But anyway, he was the guy that came up with that uh, idea.
0: Right. Hey, they work. It was a good idea. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> So I want—I I always like to get some sort of imparting knowledge that to leave to to the listeners. So if you if you could leave a piece of of knowledge with all the listeners, what would it be?
4: Well, I think you have to learn to be very honest with yourself. As Henry Adler told me one time, he said, "Roy, your friends are going to overrate you, your enemies are going to underrate you. The truth of the matter is, you're somewhere in the middle." Now, don't get carried away, and don't uh, start acting like you're a a, a super guy or something. Just play as good as you can, keep your mouth shut, and uh, go about your business. So Don Lamont was a famous big band and studio drummer. So he said, we're going to have a cup of coffee with Don Lamont today. No matter what I say, he said, you keep your mouth shut. That's pretty direct. I said, okay. So uh, he asked... uh, Don Lamond said, well, what do you think of Joe Morello? I said, "Oh, he plays great. He said, well, it's just a lot of technique. Don said, well, I would love to have technique like that. So what do you think of Louis Belson, the two bass drums? He said, well, I wish I could play that. And he went through this whole list of drummers. And Henry was trying to get him to say something bad about somebody, and he wouldn't do it. So when we went after lunch, he said, now, let that be a lesson to you. Don wouldn't say a bad word about anybody. Hmm. And he said, that's the best way. And I I subscribe to that, you know, I do too. Everybody plays as good as they can. Some of us are more talented than others. Some of us are more fortunate than others. Some of us, us our health is better than others. You never can tell. So if you're lucky enough to make a living playing the drums at any level, you have my respect. So you should have everybody else's respect as well. That's how I look at it.
0: I agree. Well said. Well said, Roy. I, I, I'm there with you 100%. And I want to I I just want to thank you for, for taking all the time to chat with me today. I know that the listeners got a ton of knowledge out of it, and I've been excited about this interview for a while, so it was a pleasure to talk to you. Also, I want to make note to the listeners that between the years, about 1980 and 92, you wrote some, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 60 articles for Modern Drummer that were called Concepts. Twelve, yeah, twelve
4: 12 years, an article every month.
0: Okay, so twelve years, an article every month, which were called the concepts, or they were, it was called concepts. It's
4: about seventy, about seventy.
0: Geez, so I want to, li- I'll link to that on the okay. uh, on the notes page from this podcast because yeah. there's so many great articles in there, and I would say that I've read probably about, I'm going to say I've read about fifty to sixty percent of them. Uh, but I want to, I, 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 they're just great articles, so I encourage everybody to check out the show notes for this podcast to to check out the. Right. uh all those articles that, that Roy wrote, like I said, between 1980 and 92, and they are just yeah. as relevant and timeless as they as they were then. So,
4: Well, a good compliment I got was I was waiting for my bags at the Chicago airport. A well-dressed man with a suit and tie came up to me and said, Are you Roy Burns? I said, Yes. He said, I read your article in Modern Drummer, the first thing I receive every time. Your articles are great. I said, Oh, you play the drums? He said, No, I'm a psychologist.
0: Really? That gave me a
4: thrill, yeah. I thought that was I was pretty impressed by
0: that, huh they are I, they're you know, and a lot of them don't a lot of them can be applied to life they're not just you know they're not just drumming articles, which I think is is great I, they they, have, they apply to other things than drumming too, so
4: Well, what happened was when rock and roll started, the communication link between the older musician and the younger musician was broken because the music was so different. See, it used to be if you were a young guy on a big band like I was, and they liked you and you were respectful, they would help you. they let her see you play this cymbal or hit the backbeat here or watch the sound with the trumpets here. And they would literally teach you how to play with a band. Well, when the rock and roll started, the kids started organizing their own bands, and the older musicians lost contact with the younger ones. So I became that older guy on the bus in the form of the articles. About passing on some basic stuff that would help young musicians. That was the concept behind it.
0: Well, it works because it still works, and I, you know, I've learned a lot from those articles, and I know that other people can learn from them as well. So, like I said, I'm definitely going to link to them so that so that people can right. can read them and and get some more knowledge from you over, as I said, your right. very successful career. So,
4: so uh, by the way, just a personal thing. Do you think you can send me a CD of this uh, interview? Uh,
0: I can. Just
4: for my, for my, my wife would love to hear it. Sure. I would like to have a, have a record of it. You yeah?
0: know. Yeah, I can. I, I can absolutely do that.
4: That's great. Well, it was great fun.
0: It was. It really was. Enjoyed. My pleasure, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in January at Nam. I'll, I'll swing by the booth and, and say hello.
4: Okay, Nick. Have a good one.
0: Roy, thank you so much again. I appreciate it. Take care. Yep. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye bye. So that was the amazing Roy Burns. I hope you learned something from that. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And I'm so glad that I was able to share this again and to get all of this commentary from, from everyone else. So special thanks to, to all the guys for, for sending me these audio clips to, to put in here. And thanks to Chris Brady for helping me organize this entire thing. And Roy Burns, thank you so much for everything you've done for me, for my career, how gracious you've been with your time. But more importantly, the impact that you have left on this drumming community. We love you. We miss you. And we'll see you on the other side. So before you turn off this podcast, I have a special treat for you. I have an 11-minute drum solo from Roy Burns. And it is an amazing solo. So sit back, take a ride on this amazing solo from Roy. And listen just how epic of a player he was. Here we go, The Great Roy Burns.